welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. My name is Matthew Dawkins, and I am joined... I was about to say as ever. I think I always start with as ever, but it isn't as ever, because, of course, there's a rotation of four hosts, and there tends to be three of us on any given episode. But I will say as ever, regardless, or irregardless, as we were just talking about American linguistics before we started recording. (laughs) Dixie! Dixie Cochran! Hello, welcome. Hi, thank you for welcoming me to the podcast that I just started recording. Well, <laughs> I, I'm an. What, what would I like to call, consider myself? A, a welcoming host. I, I want people to feel comfortable. I want them to grab themselves a drink, maybe some cheese, a cracker. Not necessarily in that order. Oh man, I wish I had cheese and crackers right now. Uh, it would be awful for the audio, though. It it? it it would. It would. I would just be muted most of the time. But you know, mm. they'd be delicious. So trade off. What cheese would you go for? Uh, currently... If you had a selection, there's a selection in front of you right now, of course, with a variety of crackers. The type of crack you go for is less impactful than the type of cheese in this scenario. So <laughs> you, let's say you have an array of favorite cheeses. Which one would you go for? Uh, one of my favorite cheeses to snack on is a caramelized onion cheddar. Uh, it is delicious. They have there's a fancy fancy version I used to get in Connecticut that I can't find anymore. But they also mm. have a really good version of it at Trader Joe's of all places. Uh, I also often have like horseradish cheddar. I oh, like, that's nice. Yeah, yes. those are nice. So yeah, I like I like all kinds of cheese. I like smoked gouda. I like a lot of sheep's and goat's milk cheeses. Uh, really, like the. The only cheeses I've met that I don't like are uh, blue cheeses in general. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, I don't know why, it always seems to be a more, uh, at least mask-presenting or masculine or almost testosterone-y cheese, the blue cheese. It's the stinkiness, <laughs> I think, the revulsion side of things. Uh, there's, it's almost like eating a very hot curry. It tends to be something that men go for. Uh, uh, almost like a chest-bumping thing. Uh, but what do you think, Lauren? Let's bring a controversial opinion into this. We have Lauren Roy as our guest on this show. Lauren, welcome. Thank you for having me. I feel like I feel like Dixie. I was going to say, are you? Have you had your head in my fridge recently? Because <laughs> <laughs> I just finished off some of that horseradish cheddar from I think it was from Trader Joe's, and I was like, I'm sitting here like, oh yeah, yeah, Trader Joe's has that caramelized onion cheese. It's really good, right? It's amazing. Like, I, I don't keep it in my fridge that much because I will go through a, a, a block of it within a mm-hmm. week. And I'm like, this is not, this is too much cheese. Um, no such thing. Yeah. No, I, I, I get most of my cheeses when I'm not feeling fancy from either Trader Joe's or Aldi. Because mm-hmm. um, they have really good selections for decent prices. Because uh, otherwise I would just go to, like, well, I lived in Connecticut. There was a liquor store that had attached to it a very small, like, cheese store. Like, you you walked in the front doors, and then if you walked to the right, there was a, a, a fancy, like, meats and cheeses store. A boutique. Yeah. Yes. And I used to spend too much money there if uh, I needed to go to buy, like, <laughs> some wine or something. I was, like, I was like, okay, I'll buy a $12 bottle of wine, and then I will spend $53 on cheese. This is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I need a cheese budget. And uh, what of you, Lauren? What, uh, it sounds like you have some of the same cheese preferences as Dixie, but in terms of cheeses you don't enjoy, are we likewise looking at blue? I, I don't mind blue cheese. I, I'm a fan of getting a really good one, um, but sometimes, yeah, they can they can be hard to find. And, and I have a friend who has a very like 
no no cheeses in that. I'm I'm sorry for the pun. I realized it as I was getting to the word. No cheeses in that vein. Um, <laughs> oh, well, we can <laughs> like, end the podcast there. <laughs> it's like the, the the train was already like powering down that track. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, like we we sort of try to avoid that and. You know, every once in a while, if, if she orders a salad and and there's a sort of surprise stinky cheese on there, it's it's just bad news. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, this would be a wonderful segue to talk about Squeaks in the Deep. But I was thinking that this entire time. <laughs> Although I will say that one of my cats, Lydia, does like cheese quite a lot. If I don't give her a little piece of cheese when I'm eating it, as as long as it's safe for cat cheese, like she won't have the onion one, obviously. Yeah. yeah. But like, if I'm eating like just plain cheddar or something, she has to have a little piece. It's just a thing. She fucking loves cheese. So. Uh, I, I, yeah, I too have known cats and dogs that ab go absolutely mad for cheese. They love it. Uh, it's uh, just one of those things, one of those uh, compulsive, addictive substances, I think, for, for anyone who's had the chance to taste it. But I'll tell you about something else. <laughs> something else that's addictive. It's role-playing games! <laughs> it's <laughs> And it's dangerous. Uh, when you roleplay, your brain turns into a fried egg, I'm given to understand. And we are here to talk about Curious Cats of Mao. Primarily, we will, of course, be jumping all over the place to talk about various other games, as we always do on here, and other subjects. But the reason we have Lauren Roy here, other than the fact that she is, of course, a delightful guest, a wonderful creative, and has been a fantastic colleague on every book with which I have had the pleasure to uh, work with her, she developed Curious Cats of Mao. I did indeed. You did indeed. And Dixie is not a spare part. Dixie, <laughs> as you, uh, as if you listened to last week's episode, you will be aware, of course, that Dixie co-created Curious Cats of Mao. You are one of the writers <laughs> on this uh, book. I, I, I like to say co-created. Yeah. I think some people think it's a bit high and mighty, but it's true. If you wrote part of the book, you co-created it. Mm -hmm. Accurate. Yeah, no, I... Uh... My final word count was something like twenty-five to thirty thousand. Somewhere up there, yeah. Yeah, I was, mm. I was, I was contracted for twenty thousand, but then we, uh, we had, we had then misbudgeted. <laughs> we had misbudgeted one of the chapters. Um, so in the end, uh, Lord and Eddie were just like, "Write what you need to, and we'll make sure you get paid." And I was like, yeah. "Okay, thanks." Because <laughs> yeah, like every now and then that'll happen. Usually, we we we, we caution people. You know, not not to go too far over budget, and so I got to a point where I was, I think, seventeen k or so into my fifteen k chapter, and I, I I wasn't done. But even mm. then, I was like, I'm, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna send it to Lauren and Eddie. <laughs> I'm gonna ask Lauren where I should cut or if I should just add, because yeah. if you overwrite a little bit, that's fine. But if everybody overwrites by like five thousand words, that's a whole separate supplement at that point. Yeah, that we didn't budget for. Um, and that's, that's something that we, we talk about a lot when we give like new freelancers advice is like, it is better to just go a little over or under and ask for guidance than it is to just bang on and be like, they're going to want all 30,000 of these words I wasn't contracted for. Because <laughs> well, maybe I, they won't. I, I don't know if this is a somewhat prudish thing to say when it comes to being an RPG developer. But I was shocked, shocked like a dowager in a period drama. You know, I had to fan myself because <laughs> I read very recently, I think, uh, I don't know if it was a writer for Onyx Path, one of our projects. I saw them post online 
that they always go over word count because in their view it's the developer's job to bring it down. Basically they will write as much as they like and it's up to the developer or and or editor. And I thought, no. And then there were people agreeing, saying, yeah, I can't be creatively constrained. And I was thinking, yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's what word counts are for. Yeah, I think I think that's part of what I like about writing to spec. Like I am, as as I've talked about on the podcast before, I'm I'm quite neurodivergent, and so having very clear guidelines of what's expected from me is great for my brain. Um, when I was in college, and teachers would give us like a very open-ended assignment, like do a creative presentation on this thing, and I'd be mm. like, "What do you want? Do you want a poster? You want a slideshow? You want an essay? Like, should I draw something? Like, what what do you want?" They're like, "Cre creative." Be creative. I, I, I would just shut down because no. I need to know how to get a perfect score. Like yeah. I, <laughs> I need to know how to get a hundred on what anything are the parameters? I do. Yes. Yeah. What are the objectives? What are the parameters? Because if I know how to get a hundred and then I don't, I understand where I messed up. But if I mm. don't know how to get a hundred and then I turn something in and it, it it doesn't get you know scored the way I want it to, I'm like, what? How? How? What happened? Like I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> um so i love writing the spec because you'll get the outlines that are like here's this section yes it's fifteen thousand words which seems like a lot but it's actually made up of 500 word chunks mm -hmm. and so the first thing i do when i get one of those outlines is i go through and i put in every single header and subheader that i think i'll need yeah um which as i said on the podcast before not only gives you usually a lot of your word count not, not a lot but like a, a, enough that it feels like you started writing Yep. But also it means that all I have to do is fill in at that point. It's like doing a worksheet almost, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like, okay, now I'm at, you know, House Siberia and I'll write their little stuff up. Now I'm at this calling, I'll write their little stuff up and I'll go through and fill in their little like bits that I need. And really it is, as we talked about during our freelance episode recently, it is, it, it is putting, you know, flesh on a skeleton. Yeah. But having the skeleton is so nice. <laughs> <laughs> And like I, I can totally see the argument for going over. Like I, I, I'm always like, oh yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, wait, wait. But there's another side to this. And you know, the 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 tricky thing is if you have ten thousand words assigned and you write fifteen thousand and leave it for the developer to cut. On the one hand, sure, the developer can do that. The thing I, the reason I would say don't do that is you don't get paid for those extra five thousand words. Yeah. You know, unless the developer finds something in there that they absolutely need and can go back to mm -hmm. whoever and say, no, we need this, this portion, then you might get paid for it. But if you're under contract for this, this is like business Lauren talking, right? Like no writers don't do that. This is good. This is good. Yeah. But it, it's, it's, you know, you, you're, you're guaranteed to get paid for the words that you've been contracted for. And if you overwrite, um, then that's 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 money that you've you've kind of let go of. That's that's time yeah. you could have spent working on another paying project. I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of um, the concept of money flows toward the writer, mm -hmm. which is a, a thing that I've been hearing since you know for for twenty or thirty years or however long. From uh, there's a, a writer named Jim McDonald who kind of coined that phrase, and he used it generally to mean like. Don't fall for for scam agents or editors who want you to pay them for work. Not that, the not worst. that, yeah. And and you should pay your editors when they're doing work for you. Let me let me be clear right, on that. But, but there were but there there's so many still scammy publishing places that are like, give us five hundred dollars and maybe we'll publish your work. Maybe we'll spell check your stuff and slap a bad cover on it. But you know, 
I believe money should flow toward the writer and all of those things. Like if you're doing the work, you should get paid for it. So don't put yourself in a position where you've done a whole bunch of work that you're not getting paid for. Yeah. Like in, in the specific curious cats of mouse situation, it was that I was still writing to the outline, which is why I, I I went back to Lord Eddie and, and said like, do I have tunnel vision? Am I missing something that I could be cutting? Because this one is a supplement. So we didn't need to reprint quite as much information from Realm Empire. Um, and they they did show me some places where I could cut some stuff, which was really helpful. But also, in the end, we all agreed that like we needed some extra word count. In other projects that I've done, like I think when I wrote for Anima, maybe a couple others, I've actually underwritten by like you know, I don't know, five to ten percent, mm-hmm. so that I could say like, where do you want me to fill this out in 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 second drafts? Yeah. Um, which I think is more helpful because then the developer can go through and be like, oh, I want more on this idea that 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 you touched on. Yeah. And sometimes um, it can yes. be very difficult for the developers to estimate the mm-hmm. work oh, yeah. count required. Uh, I often come across that when developing books that require big big selections of powers. So I saw it with The World Below, I saw it with Mummy, uh, to a degree I saw it when I was working on Vampire as well. Uh, different powers require different volumes of text. And so just saying... Okay, I want you to write uh, 10,000 words worth of powers. In Trinity Continuum, 10,000 words worth of edges is very different to 10,000 words worth of, let's say, disciplines or gifts or what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the subject of Curious Cats of Mao and Word Count, because this is very important to some people, I see every now and then with our crowdfunding campaigns with the books we're developing, there'll be a fan that will say, What? kind of word count are we looking at with this book? In other words, how big is it going to be? Mm-hmm. So, Lauren, <laughs> putting you on the spot as the developer, what was the initial objective outline for or a word count for for Curious Cats of Mao? And around what volume did it end up as? Oh, man, I have a spreadsheet. <laughs> oh, preparation. I, I think the, the original um, plan was 100,000 words. Mm. And we ended up, I mean, we didn't, we didn't do too badly. I think we ended up around like 103 or 105. Oh, but so, so it's, a, it's a pretty substantial size for a source book then. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. So yeah, this is a um, as uh, Dixie already made clear. This is an expansion to Realms of Pugmire. It isn't an independent uh, core book. So that means this this is going to contain quite a lot of uh, playable information, I assume. Yes, and that was that was one of the things that was exciting about it was having you know with with Realms of Pugmire already being there, you've got all of the you know, how to roll, what to roll, that's already mm-hmm. done. We didn't have to yeah. recreate that part. So we could go into new things. We could expand on the monarchies. We could do some new sort of cat-centric rules. We could do some, um, you know, cat-specific enemies and and spells and powers and uh, advice for how to run a game with cat characters that kind of you had the room to do that because you didn't have to be like, okay, this is this is how you make your dice pool. Yeah. Well, that, that's actually something I'd like to ask about because I think you... Oh, I present the idea of Realms of Pugmire to to p- prospective fans, customers, GMs and such, uh, or guides in our case. 
and they will ask for an elevator pitch or they will want some kind of breakdown for well why does this differ from let's say dungeons and dragons mm -hmm. or pathfinder is it just that i'm playing a dog or a cat or is there more to it than that so on the on that uh, blue cheese vein of <laughs> Uh, how you run a game of Curious Cats of Mao. What is it about Curious Cats of Mao that does differentiate it, not just from other RPGs, but from Realms of Pugmire? I, I think for this, it's the the sort of different um, the different vibe you have as cat characters, where the the monarchies are um, very much they're steeped in intrigue, but they're also they're the cats are explorers. They are um, delving into sometimes the darker side of magic and and artifacts and you know the the game is set in a world that is post 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 human um nobody really knows what happened to to people mm. um and that's one of the mysteries that your characters might be trying to chase down is oh here's this this ruin that we know you know has something weird in it and what is it and what does it tell us about about man who came before us um and cats are a little bit more um likely to to put i wouldn't say put themselves at risk than dogs because dogs are very heroic in that way but cats, but cats have nine lives so they can't yeah. put themselves at risk so <laughs> but they can also be like you know this might go terribly wrong but i'm in it i'm in for it and they're they're kind of taking the darker side of that sometimes. So you'd say they have more of a, I guess, a lust for the gold or plastic in this case, a lust for power, perhaps, so that they will put themselves in danger because, well, to put it rather bluntly, maybe they want it a little more, or they don't see the dangers as easily as, as dogs, perhaps. I think it, I think it's curiosity. I think we can go right mm -hmm. with that. You know, <laughs> curiosity killed the cat, and then the second half of that phrase is "twas satisfaction brought him back." Right? Yes. And so the, it's like without you know, no risk, no reward, um, mm. and they're they're less con you know, dogs. The dogs of Pugmire. It's you know, always be a good dog. What what it means to be good for a cat is also very individual. And we talk about this a little bit, I think, in the guide chapter. Yeah. Um, also because cats want to be excellent more than good. Yes. And that's a very different concept. Yes. And, you know, it's it's not that cats are bad and it's not that cats are, are immoral. It's that sometimes what it means to be excellent depends on your situation. Mm -hmm. It depends on, you know, your your personal goals do i want to be excellent in this life or do i want to do something now that will be excellent going forward you know after i'm gone yeah. um mm. and what what that means is very situational and individual and i that's one of the fascinating things i think about about these characters is how much sort of nuance and depth you can get in there yeah, I think one of the other things that is definitely more of an undercurrent than like an explicitly stated thing is that if you look at dog culture versus cat culture in Realms of Pugmire, dogs revere man, right? Mm -hmm. So they yeah. treat man's artifacts with a a a, a reverence that uh, cats do not, frankly. No. Like cats, <laughs> cats will straight up break shit, and yep. that that leads to some friction between the two cultures, yeah. um, because you know cats believe man existed. They believe the old ones existed because there's there's evidence of that, right? But they don't hold any particular reverence for them. They think uh, man worshipped them. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you can see how those two cultures would clash. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also that 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 really informs how cats interact with the world, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. in a way that like like I said, we don't make super, super explicit, but it's it's definitely always kind of there in the background. Yeah. And uh, what what's uh, in, in a game of Curious Cats of Mao? I know that one of the realms of Pugmire's strongest suits, at least to my taste, is its bestiary. There's often a re very interesting range of antagonists, and I love a game with a nice, interesting range of antagonists. <laughs> uh, who are the cats often facing up against? Is it the age-old rivalry of cats and dogs, or does the uh, net cast a little wider than that? A little wider than that. I mean, you can definitely, we do have some dog antagonist characters in there. Um, but they're, you know, cats are very much, number one, dedicated to uh, pouncing on the unseen, which are mm -hmm. kind of the the invisible, corrupting influence or demons in the world. So they're they're absolutely out there fighting monsters and, and creepy things. This You could do a great horror game with Cats of Mao. Um but there's also a degree of intrigue uh, between the cat houses. So you can, you can do a game that's full out, go into these ruins and, and fight these, these monsters and, and, you know, be, be a fierce warrior. But you can also do a game where you're uh, pulling off a heist mm -hmm. and you're, you're trying to sneak past guards that are just regular cats um, mm -hmm. in, in the middle of a cat city. So you can, you can sort of, do whatever you like with it. There's a lot of room to kind of tailor your game to what your players want to do. So I've got, a, a, I guess, a process question, and this is for both of you. And it, it relates to working on a property like Curious Cats of Mao, because all three of us have worked quite heavily on horror games. Uh, I think it's fair to say. Uh, we've all spent time in the trenches of the Chronicles of Darkness. We've all uh, done a little bit, at least, in the World of Darkness. And I can well imagine that there are horrific elements in Curious Cats of Mao, as you say, with the Unseen, especially these sort of phantom, these spectres that go around meddling and corrupting. But how do you, I guess, get in the right frame of mind, the right mode to work on a game like this? Because there are lighter elements. There is the fantastical side of it. And I think there is a, an innate whimsy, I suppose, to playing anthropomorphic animals. It isn't necessarily it isn't childish, but it does have a, a more fairy tale quality. I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, how how do you, what is your method if uh, if I can afford to sound so pretentious? <laughs> Gosh, I think it, it it probably helps that I think for both Lauren and I, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, a, I know that we're both cat people. We both have mm -hmm. multiple cats. But B, I think that both you and I are are big fantasy fans in general. Oh yeah. Like more so than horror. Like I love horror. I love a horror movie. I I I you know, read horror novels occasionally, but most of what I gravitate toward is fantasy in terms of you know, both video games, novels, whatever. And so I think that for me it's just a little bit more innate almost. Like I I grew up reading like 
Chronicles of Narnia or some of my favorite books when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's so many more series as I get to hear and shout out, but I'm not going to go through all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that that helps a little bit because we do like th there are dark elements in fantasy. You know, like most of the best fantasy movies have very dark elements, especially some of the ones that I, I grew up with in the 80s and 90s. If you look at like Legend or The Last Unicorn or Labyrinth or whatever, mm -hmm. The Dark Crystal. The Dark Crystal is fucking scary. Yeah. It's also a fantasy that I love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I, I think it's. I, I it's it's funny because when I was I'm I'm still very much a horror fan. I would almost exclusively read horror when I was younger and I only branched mm -hmm. out into science fiction and fantasy more um in you know like late high school and college. And so I I'm, I'm like hmm how does that work and inform my my stuff. We'll we'll do it. I'll, I'll have that existential crisis after we stop recording. <laughs> I mean I also read a, I I read a lot more horror when I was younger. Yeah. And I think that now that I am, you know, coming in on 40, like I just look to fiction to escape a little more than mm -hmm. I used to. Yeah. Um especially as the world has changed around me and you kind of I mean this is all very like you said, existential stuff, but as you kind of lose that like bit of childhood naivete about the world, yeah, I'm like, I'm like, okay, fiction is now for relaxing. It is no <laughs> longer for stressing me the fuck out. <laughs> um, so yeah, like I I've been reading a lot of like Brandon Sanderson's books recently because I wanted to go through the whole Cosmere, uh, which takes a while because there's a lot of them and they're very long. Mm -hmm. uh and that's that's more of like where i go toward for for fiction now that that and my and my romance novels that any longtime listeners know about uh i i will read a horror but they're just not as often what i pick up however i still love watching horror and i think it's what we've talked about before on on more horror focused podcasts in that i enjoy the tension and release that occurs in both horror and comedy mm -hmm. yeah um and so I I I watch a lot more horror than I read these days. But marrying those two really is kind of where monarchy's sweet spot is, I think. Yeah. And I th I think it was it was helpful for me to an extent to have I I've been kind of working a lot within Exalted over the last, you know, several months. That's sort of taken up a lot of my focus in addition to mm -hmm. monarchy. So doing uh working on both of those at the same time helped me sort of ground myself more in the the fantasy side of things as well. Even though Exalted is a completely different feel from from Pugmire. Um, yeah. But still having that kind of like sweeping adventure, you know, high heroic kind of mm -hmm. feel. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, well, on that subject, I suppose, and speaking of tone, when running... Uh, the Curious Cats of Mao, or indeed Realms of Pugmire. What's your sp sweet spot for, I guess, tone, genre, uh, if you will? Uh, do you like to lean more into that epic, traipsing fantasy, or do you go more political, or you mentioned heists, that kind of thing? Admittedly, all can be explored through Curious Cats of Mao, but what's your, uh, your preference, Lauren? Uh, I, I think I like to keep things a little bit more kind of lighthearted, but you can have serious moments in all of that. Mm. And um, I, I think we have adventures at the end of the book that really do well with that, um, where you have these kind of tense situations, but you also have room for character exploration and, um, you know, delving delving into that, you know, what what are your cat's motivations? Why are they doing this thing? Yeah. Um, 
And I, I think another, I'm trying to remember if we have it in our, our media influences or inspiration section is I'm a giant fan of leverage and leverage redemption. And I think that does very well of, you know, showing how you can run a heist game and how you can do character building um, while you are reaching for your goal. Right. I see. Okay. So, well, and, and you, and Dixie, obviously you, you play a lot more than you run. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, how about you? When you get into a game of uh, Curious Cats or indeed Realms of Pugmire, uh, well, let's say the character you create, what <laughs> kind of character do you lean toward? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I've played a lot more kind of creepy caster types in Mal than I do in other games. I think just because of the art from first edition of Sabian is my favorite thing in the world because I, mm -hmm. I I love a hairless cat <laughs> and one who's also doing necromancy is very fun. Uh, alas, my boyfriend won't let me get one because he says they're creepy. Um, <laughs> so all of all of our cats are 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 haired, but um, I think that for me a lot of what I expect from a Mao game versus versus a Pugmire game, although it's always up to the group as everyone knows when it comes to running anything. Um, is that I tend to expect a little bit more, uh, kind of urban setting and a little bit more intrigue in a Mao game. Even yeah. if you're out adventuring, like you're probably doing it for a specific person or reason, and it's probably a little secretive, um, because they're just not quite as bombastic and outgoing as dogs are, which yeah. really, you know, speaks to the actual domestic animals' personalities. Um, and you know there, there are exceptions. There are super outgoing cats. There are super shy dogs. I get it. But um, when I think of monarchies, I very much think of like you know cobblestone streets and fog and kind of a Victorian England Sherlock Holmesy kind of feeling. Whereas when I think of Pugmire, I think very much more of like D and D. Like they're in medieval towns and cities, and they're running out and they're being you know heroic and bringing back artifacts. And that's just kind of a, an, an overall tone thing. Mm -hmm. You can mix those, obviously. You can have a really creepy Pugmire adventure. You can have a really bombastic adventuring now adventure. But I think that the kind of more default mode for those is as I've just described. Right. Okay, well, while you have been describing that, Dixie, and I promise I have been listening... Uh, I oh, no. can also I can multitask because I'm going to as we're around the halfway mark I'm going to set you both uh, an objective. Sometimes I do this when I conduct interviews. This is probably why that no one asks me to do them. We're getting homework, Lauren. I was going to say homework. Oh, oh no, no, <laughs> no, it's not homework. Uh, this is work quiz. in the class. It's a quiz. Uh, oh no, th no, th no quiz. this is this is something for you to think on before we get to the end. <laughs> I've been randomly generating things. You see, I like random generators. And I would be very interested to hear the both of you bounce ideas off each other and come up with, by the end of this episode, a plot that involves... So we have the genre of murder mystery, which I think eminently suits Curious Cats of Mao. Uh, we have a location of a temple, which is interesting. I think that probably brings to mind certain ancient Egyptian or or Aztec uh, Mayan step pyramids and the like. And we also have a theme here of betrayal. So, so a murder mystery, murder a mystery temple, temple betrayal. Okay. and betrayal. So have a think. You don't need to answer it just yet, but by the <laughs> end we'll want some kind of curious cats of Mao plot that people can play, complete with statted up 
I'm oh, sorry. yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> I'll get right on that. I'm going to start yeah. randomly rolling characters right now, Lauren. Give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> Let's push some buttons on the character sheet. Right. So, right. What, so while you're thinking on that, I will keep bombarding you with questions just to um, make to throw things throw us fair. off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's a rather simple question, but I imagine there's a lot of people who want to know, what is the what are the major differences between monarchies of Mao... Uh, which uh, I was very happy to have worked on. I don't don't remember my invitation to work on this one. And uh, actually, I think I may have been asked, and I wasn't available. I watched the Onyx Path News yesterday. You said you weren't available. So <laughs> yes, uh, 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 permit me, permit me my faux indignation. And yes, the differences between Monarchies of Mao and Curious Cats of Mao. What are the headlines? What what would people notice the most uh, going from one to the other? Um, I I think I, I would say that the two big things are that we well no wait now I've got three I'm always going to add more why not um, <laughs> the eight big things are <laughs> <laughs> we're still recording on Thursday because I just keeps coming up with stuff <laughs> so so definitely that we've added two new callings for for people to play, which are the Mystics and Torpedoes. Um, They were in uh, Pirates of Pugmire. Um, But now we have them sort of fully fleshed out and and some some rules for them. Um, We have very much expanded on the monarchies themselves and what it's like if you're visiting each of the different monarchies. Um, And I think that's to me, that was one of the cool things that, you know, when Eddie was like, you know, okay, we, we need to come up with this outline. I'm like, oh, I've got this. <laughs> <laughs> and and some of that, like I said, there's exalted overlap was having worked on Across the Eight Directions and uh, co-developing that with Eric Minton was he, we sort of together came up with, okay, how do we make these locations feel distinct from each other, mm-hmm. but also cohesive as far as information goes so that when you go to a section you know you're going to get um what it's what it's like there what what people wear what people eat what people do um and so having that kind of experience helped me to figure out what I wanted to see in each monarchy and we didn't have as mm-hmm. much room for the monarchies as we had for the the places in eight directions so it's like okay what is the most important thing that I would like for people to have and how uh, how do we get it so that it's not just here's the stuff that you see, but also here's the stuff that your characters might interact with. So we have places to go and people to see, mm-hmm. which felt pretty important because you can put a bunch of information down, but you also want it to be something where guides will be like, "Ooh, I want to put that in my story. Mm. Yeah. And like as a as a quick aside, in addition to Curious Cats of Mal going live on Backer Kit this past Tuesday. Uh, Across the Eight Directions went on sale for POD this past Wednesday. So go get your copy and also pre-order this. You could do so many things this week. (laughs) Convenient timing. (laughs) All of them require spending money. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, I I, I definitely agree with that. Like, I I, I talked a little bit last week about how, you know, in the original monarchies, there's not really, like, a bunch of locations detailed. It's more like, this is what the whole monarchy is like. And they don't mention, like, a lot of city names or town names or what the people like like you said dress and do and eat and what what have you mm. yeah. um which is important because yes there there are six united monarchies but that's a fairly recent thing in their history so these were six you know disparate cultures on some level yeah <laughs> before they 
united and they all have their own values and their own kind of cultures as you move through much like i wouldn't say individual states but much like regions of the u.s right yeah like imagine if like the northeast and the southeast and the midwest each had their own like ruler <laughs> yeah they, they would be very different places um and there would be some culture shock going from one to the other uh and that's that's kind of what i i you know, try to think about when I was working on the two Marnikis that I wrote. I have not read through uh, M.K. Anderson stuff, so I don't know what they did exactly uh, for for therefore. Um, but I really, you know, I think that the two that I got to work on were really distinct, and I think that having them be distinct and kind of like this new tenuous, like, okay, so we're trading with y'all, but this could stop at any moment if you decide to pull some shit. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we, we still need to try to be self-sufficient if possible. Uh, it was a really interesting exercise in thinking a lot more about the culture than I had before. Cause they were a lot more homogenous in the last edition, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And one of uh, the things that, that we, that, that that Dixie and MK really took into account too was how things like the um you know the the region's climate or geography mm-hmm. affected and informed the those various monarchies. Like there was a line I was looking at it earlier and um in Simric mm-hmm. where you have this they're they're kind of um central, they're sort of farmland, but they're very much prone to storms. And the cats of House Simric are often performers. Not all of them. Some of them are diplomats, but mm-hmm. every Simric cat is expected to have some kind of entertaining talent. Even even if you're a terrible juggler, you have learned how to juggle, you know. Right. Um, and part of that is because they spend so much time during the stormy season, which is pretty much always um, possibly underground, like waiting out a tornado or, you know, waiting for whatever terrible storm is overhead to pass. So what do you do during that time? You you entertain each other with stories and songs and things mm-hmm. like that. And I thought that was a really cool way to pull in the detail of the the setting into the culture. Yeah. I I joked when I got my assignments that I got lucky and that I got the northern and southernmost ones. So they're pretty <laughs> easy to make distinct. Because yep. I'm like, well, one of these has a lot of beachfront property. The other one is in the mountains. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so very, very different places. Uh, but they were super fun to write. And like... I think it also made sense to have one person right before that are all kind of in the middle and connected mm-hmm. uh, because then they can make all those things. It's kind of like when we were doing uh, Beyond the Grave and Matthew had me write all three vampires. Yeah. <laughs> if three of us had written them, they would have all been similar, right? Yeah. But if one person writes all of them, then they can make them distinct. So that, that, that made a lot of sense to me. Um, I do have a question for you, Lauren. Yeah. If you could live in any of the monarchies, and there's no judgment on my end if it's one of the ones I wrote or not, which one would you live in? Oh, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, probably because I'm a giant nerd, it would be Angora because that's where the giant, the library and the trees is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like that, I even just the description of it is is really cool. And um, I got to play um, with Eddie Redmoon role playing. I believe it is up now, part one. It um, is. Yay. Yes, it is. Um, and it, it starts in the library in the trees, which is where my character starts out in that adventure. And I'm like, this, this is this is really cool. I want to go there. You made a character who was in a library? I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were pre-made characters, so we got to pick them. And, and I was like, I, I went for the mage because I'm also a sucker for, for or she was a, um, a mancer. So mm. I, I'm a sucker for, for magic type characters. I, I totally get that. I have played Mancers and Mystics more in Mal than I played anything else. So. Yeah. 
And uh, well, oh, sorry, no, go ahead, Dixie, go ahead. No, it's okay. Like based on my actual personality, I'd probably also say Angora if I needed to pick one. Mm -hmm. But just because I really enjoy what I've worked on, I could also see see Siberian or uh, <laughs> or Rex. It's especially if I could live in my my favorite name town that may have changed. But I did name a town Coz because it's cozy. Yes, I but love I, it. But I put an lot over the O to make it, you know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure like that's still there. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is it is built on a hot spring. So you could have all the wonderful, you know, mountains surrounding you and like crisp air and everything. But also it's a lot warmer in that town than the other ones in Siberia. Because yeah. <laughs> they figured out the whole, you know, piping system. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> And when uh, when you're working on, I guess, fantasy civilizations such as these, and uh, the the question extends to Exalted uh, as well, how much do you draw from real world historical examples, and or, or uh, I guess to put it another way, I know that it's impossible to completely divorce what we write from history that informs us. But do you try to cleave to real-world examples, or do you try harder to, I guess, pull away from that and make something up that's completely fantastical? And again, uh, th that question to the both of you. I, I think it, it sort of depends. So so that was one of the things with, with Eight Directions, is a lot of those locations... Um, pull from a variety of of inspirations and what we wanted to be careful of was not to appropriate yeah. um you know especially if we're we're pulling from cultures for that are you know traditionally marginalized um so you you want to look into like how things happened or there's a there's a city where one of the inspirations i was looking at um got invaded by a neighbor at one point and for a while they were kind of under that neighbor's control and then suddenly they just I, I think it was just like a bunch of regular people kind of came together and kicked the invaders out and it was an interesting um it was i think it was amalfi or was was the inspiration for it and but it was you know this sort of historical period where interesting things happen and how does that affect what comes after and so you're kind of looking at like what are the um, what are the, what's the context surrounding where you are and what's going on? Yeah. Um, I, I'm also prone to just kind of making stuff up. And I think that's where I kind of every once in a while I would imagine Eric Min kind of grabbing me by the collar and yanking me back. Like, no, you need to think about why this would happen this way. I'm like, oh, all right, fine. I just thought it sounded cool. <laughs> and he's like, no, you need to have a reason. Yes, yeah. these things can't spring up in a vacuum, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Dixie? I think that for the stuff that I've written specifically for Pugmire, I, I have written mostly um, character creation chapters across, you know, three books now, uh, and a little bit of setting here and there. Yeah. Um, so I haven't had to think as much about the history, but I do think a lot about the culture. In, in my brain, it's roughly Renaissance-era Europe, as far as, like, technology and fashion and things go, although clearly with a, a, a fantasy veneer over it. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to be super Eurocentric, which is how I I like think of how the like look of everything is. Um, but past that, like like Lauren was just saying, I do try to think about why a thing would be that way because generally that's more interesting when you're writing in um various cultures. Like if I'm writing, you know, the like Rex monarchy, they're on the ocean. They control most of the the ocean border, like most of the coasts of the monarchies. 
Um, and so they pro they're probably the biggest traders across the oceans. And they also have a pretty convenient place to flee if they ever have to mm -hmm. on their fleets of boats. As opposed to Siberian, who's literally, you know, backs against the wall because they're up mm. in the mountains. So I try to think a lot about, like, how geography has played into various conflicts in the past. Yeah. Um, you know, pre-flight, especially. Um, because, yeah, like, if you have access to a beach and a fleet of ships, a lot of people can leave at one time if, if something really bad happens. Um, or if there is, like, a really bad fire in, in, in town or what have you. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I, I do just try to think of, you know, the, the whys and wherefores because, as, as Lauren's saying, it is fun to make things up. It is fun to make things up whole cloth. But I find even most of the fantasy I read more interesting if I really feel like I understand the world and how it works. Yeah. One of my least favorite things in fantasy um, is where... An author, there's a couple of specific ones that I'm sure you both know who I'm talking about, will be like, and then they developed a new power. And that's how <laughs> everything was solved. And in, in, in the last 20 pages of the book. And I'm like, well, that's unsatisfying. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas a lot of stuff that I like to read, they'll kind of seed the ideas. And then at the end, I get to feel smart going, oh, that's, that's the thing. That's, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do, do, do the thing that we that I have figured out you can do by extrapolating from everything that you've been telling me. Um, so I feel very clever when I look at Pugmire or Monarchy stuff, and I can tell what something is from the old ones, but it's it's lampshaded enough that I, I it's it's not obvious, which I think yeah. is a lot of what writing for these is. Like like Eddie said in last week's episode, and like we've talked about before, like every, everyone's trying to do a like laser pointer joke, right? <laughs> One of the first things you think of when you think of, of cats. Is laser pointer joke, sleeping in sunbeams. There are like a few things that cats are just known to do. <laughs> There's literally a cat sleeping in a sunbeam to my right right now. I Usually I have multiple ones in this room. I don't know where they all are right now. They've all fucked off because I'm talking continuously. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, like I, uh, I like the more subtle jokes. Like I like, I, I, I like the idea of catnip tea. Mm -hmm. And that being a thing that they, you know, go crazy over, but a thing that they, you know, drink for stimulation. <laughs> yep. Much like we drink caffeine. Uh gosh, there there there's so many little subtle things throughout all this this entire game line that I think are just wonderful when, when you notice them. Yeah. And I don't always notice them right away. Like I have I have been years past the first time that I read Pugmire and gone, oh when like Eddie has told me the actual background for something. Yeah. And uh, I assume both of you uh, very much fall on the, and uh, this is an assumption, but I assume both of you are comfortable with the idea of we don't present concrete answers. We allow the guides and their players to find them themselves, or or have we provided more answers in Curious Cats of Mao to some of the mysteries in the in monarchies? So on the one hand, yes, I do like letting guides kind of giving them some story hooks that they can then run with. Um, but we did, and this is the third cool thing, so I'm glad you said that. <laughs> um, you're going to find more information on how Smilodon in here, yes. um, which yeah. was very much, yeah, that first edition was kind of like, there's this seventh house that we yes, don't really... Rogue house. Yeah. And we we left it very, um, very vague in, in first edition because, you know, it was, no none of the cats want to admit it. 
Like they don't want to talk about how there was this house that betrayed them all because that's a point of mm-hmm. pride, right? Like how did this slip past us? Um, and so in this, in, in Curious Cats of Mao, um, we do talk about how Smilodon and we give you some of its history and what happened. Not, not the whole story. There's definitely um, gaps to fill in, but it, it goes into part of why they left and uh, what they found on the other side of the mountains and what your cats could find if they go into Smilodon territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we did a little bit in Smilodon in the adventure book that I developed for first edition. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, we didn't give it any concrete answers. It was more like, you go up there, there's some ruins, there's a ghost maybe. I don't know. Like, it's, 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 it's a lot clearer like, what the actual background was, um, which I, I, I tried to keep very much in line with the original vision for that. So I am glad that now we actually are getting some detail on House Mylodon because they're really interesting. Yeah, and the, the, the writer on that section really, like thought about it and uh gave me some some things where i was like oh my god that's so creepy i love it Mm. (laughs) it was it was a lot of fun doing the developing on this book because the writing team was just so creative and you know everybody like you said at the beginning that it's sort of a co-creator it was really a collaborative effort everybody was amazing at talking to each other and bouncing ideas off of each other and you know for me one of the things that was super intimidating is, and I feel like I'm, I'm blaspheming by admitting this, but I haven't played a lot of D and D. I have played it, but I haven't absorbed the the rules and the sort of you know classic um, weapons or spells or things. So you know, it was like I know that I'm going into this with people like like Ryan and David. I know know a lot of D and D stuff. And it's like, I'm going to kind of, you know, step back and, and let you all talk things out because you totally know more than I do in this case. And, you know, Eddie obviously was there to kind of check on how the rules um, work specifically, you know, because Cats of Mao and, and Realms of Pugmire is, is um, not the same system. Um, and it's its own system, but it was really cool to have people who were able to bounce off of all of that knowledge and kind of create with each other in that regard. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that is wonderful. That is wonderful to hear because I've worked on plenty of books that have been collaborative efforts and they felt wonderful for being so and plenty more where the writers for neither love nor money will communicate with each other and and it can really become quite a frustrating experience. Sometimes working independently as part of a team, if, if that's not an oxymoron, is absolutely fine. But sometimes it's completely essential that you work together. So I'm glad it worked out on this one. Yeah. Uh, but I, I refer you back uh, to my earlier question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I posed a scenario, or at least the template of a scenario, I'm not going to do the real work here, uh, that involved a murder mystery, a temple as a location, and betrayal as a theme, if you will. And uh, we were to uh, come up with some kind of story hook or campaign premise for Curious Cats of Mao that invoked all three of these elements. So have the two of you put any thought to this assignment? I have, but I think that we should just collaborate on the final final one here. Yeah. So, 
So who do you think has been murdered, Lauren? Hmm. I My thought was the characters don't know. They come across the body maybe in the temple okay. and uh, don't know quite who the victim is. So do I want to say it's a mysterious temple that's outside of the monarchies? Or do we want to say that it is one that has just been discovered within the monarchies? Like somebody fell through the ground somewhere. Ooh, I like that. In a temple. Yeah. So they're technically probably in part of the underneath. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they might not be as familiar with the underneath as all of our, our mice and rats friends who will come along later. <laughs> uh, so, so if they have just fallen through the earth into this subterranean temple, or a temple that has been buried by age, maybe it wasn't subterranean mm -hmm. upon its ori yeah, that's, that's, original that's, construction. That's what I was thinking, was that it is, it is some ruin, possibly from the time of the old ones, possibly from later than that, we're not sure, mm -hmm. but it, it, it's definitely been buried but this body, uh, is it fresh, this murder, or is this a body from the time when the temple was left to ruin? Uh, I suppose the murder could be a cold case. Uh, what What are you two thinking? I think it's fresh, which provides why it's so mysterious. Like, there's yeah. this temple without very much obvious signs of use, right? Yeah. So the last thing you'd expect there? is somebody who's been dead for, like, a day. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like yeah. uh there's not very much dust to serve on the floor like i don't see any obvious trails but there is this person who was clearly very recently murdered mm -hmm. interesting so we're going this is a little bit of a king solomon's mines uh moment because that very thing is <laughs> in that novel and yet, I have not read that. So Same, I, I have not. Well, no. well, as it, it uh, and I don't, I don't begrudge that. It is arguably the formative novel for adventures for for the Indiana Jones style of quests. And I imagine your story here will handle it slightly better than in deepest Africa. We found the body of a white man mm. in a temple, and so what could the mystery <laughs> could the mystery be? Uh, that led to this man's death. Yeah, I was but... wondering if, like, when when we say there's a dead person, is a is it a cat? Is it a dog? Is it a mouse? Is it a lizard? Like, wait. Well, wait. That, that's what I would like to know. What do you think, Lauren? I I think a cat. I think because we have you know Trilony's trailblazers, and so presumably our our group of adventurers are are maybe a bunch of trailblazers who are exploring somewhere in the area and it's like well we don't know of any other trailblazer groups who are out here so is this person someone else or are they an explorer that got lost like yeah they, they have no house insignia on them like we yeah. don't know where they're from okay yeah, and that. where does the betrayal enter into this then or would that be uh spoiling it for anyone who plays the campaign actually no no <laughs> we've, got, we've got we've got to talk about where the betrayal enters into the plot somehow I think that eventually it could be discovered that for all the, like, you could spend a lot of time chasing the unseen and mysterious leads in this case and trying to find, you know, what's, what's going on. But at the end, it turns out that someone who heard that the group was on the trail of a specific artifact uh, decided to plant this so okay. that they could go ahead and get the artifact while our party was distracted. Yeah. So there would be somebody else from probably the same monarchy as our folks or, you know, who 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 knew them on some level mm -hmm. and is, uh, yeah, messing with them purposefully so that they can 
get ahead of them and get the artifact uh, that, you know, will bring glory to their house or what have you. I like and that because that also gives you that tension that we talked about earlier of what does it mean to be an excellent cat, right? Mm -hmm. Is being an excellent cat, uh, figuring out the the person who was murdered and who did it and why and bringing them to justice or is being an excellent cat going, okay, well, there's this body here, but also we're supposed to be finding this artifact and we need to go do that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that ideally the adventure would wrap up with you, you know, exposing the betrayer as somebody who not only set a trap for you and did so in a really underpawed way, but also possibly murdered somebody mm -hmm. to, you know, <laughs> uh, make make this trap make sense. So, yeah, I think that that would be a, a, a satisfying end to the adventure is bringing that other cat to justice and therefore also being given the artifact as part of your reward. So you get yeah. everything you were looking for. Well, there we have it. There now. Not only do we have two adventures already. Is it two adventures in the Curious Cats and Mao books? Oh, it's three. I, it's three. It's three. My goodness. Okay, I'm gonna have to uh, get busy with some of my books because I always put two in mine in the ones <laughs> I develop. So I need to put four in the next Raising one. Raising the bar. Yeah, I can't be shown up. It will just be a big book of adventures and maybe one page of rules. All right, so Squeaks <laughs> in the Deep has to have five for whenever we add oh. that one to the realm of Pugmire. All right. Uh, and uh, let's let's not lose content for the sake of these adventures. Let's just keep adding word count. That's what yeah, we yeah, established yeah, yeah. early on in this uh, in this interview. Realm of Pugmire, Squeaks in the Deep is going to be 600 pages. <laughs> Basically be an exalted book. Yeah, 600,000 words. So... <laughs> So, uh, we like, uh, admittedly we're doing it very close to the end, but we like the to give guests the opportunity to promote things that aren't just the book we've been talking about. I, I anticipated we'd be talking about all kinds of games, but funnily enough, Curious Cats of Mao has, uh, has dominated our, our conversation, which is excellent. It's, it's great that there's so much to talk about. Uh, but, Lauren, uh, is there anything else you have been working on or that you will be working on? Something that you want to talk about or promote um, enthusiastically? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I've been busy. So, um, like we said earlier, Across the Eight Directions goes on sale tomorrow for me, two days ago for people listening. And we are wrapping up or have uh, Eric and I have wrapped up the errata process on Many Faced Strangers, which was a supplement for Lunars for Exalted, um, which was a heck of a lot of fun. And people are seem to be very excited about what they've seen so far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also had the pleasure of developing Trinity Continuum Aegis. And so that yeah. is chugging along. And I just in my inbox, we got the, the, the stretch goal, the Aegis Atlas back from editing. So that's what I'm on to after this. And if, if people haven't checked that out, it's uh, Trinity Continuum way back in the uh, Greek Dark Ages. Wonderful. And you know something, Dixie? I never mm -hmm. ask you, is there anything you want to promote? <laughs> that you've worked on, uh, and obviously it doesn't have to be Onyx Pathy, but if, if it is, that's excellent too. Uh, gosh, most of what I've been doing recently has been in-house type stuff, uh, but if you... I will encourage people to check out the most recent uh, novellas that we put out for Eagles of Essence a few months ago, because I did the cover art for all of those, and I'm happy with it. Not the actual art, but the like layout. 
Mm-hmm. And I think cool. it looks beautiful. I'm very proud of myself. Lauren, I have laid out your words. Yay! Um, <laughs> yeah, I've been I learned that. That's been super fun. Obviously, Curious Cats of Mao is the biggest thing right now that I have worked on recently. Um, I always encourage people to check out Anima if they get a chance to, because I also worked on that and I'm very proud of my work. Um, past that, I'm going to be going to a lot of concerts and small conventions here soon. So, you know, people want to come find me at Promacon in Baltimore next weekend. They can. <laughs> I'll be at my friend's art booth. Uh, I was at a tiny Star Trek convention uh, like uh, two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and I was talking to one of my friends who was a, 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 a drag queen. And uh, this this gentleman came around the corner and was like, are you Dixie Cochran from Onyx Path? And I was like, oh, because <laughs> uh, that never happens. Like, fast. <laughs> it was it was very cool uh, to, to talk to somebody who is who is in our discord. Hello. But yeah, it was just kind <laughs> of random because I, you know, I understand getting recognized at like Save Against Fear where Onyx Path are sponsors. Right. Or at like PAX Unplugged. But this wasn't even a role playing con. <laughs> Mm. I was just there to meet Tawny Newsom. Oh, neat! Yeah, she's really nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, so um, yeah, find me around the DC area. God knows where I'll be. Uh, but come say hi. Definitely check out Curious Cats of Mal. Uh, definitely listen to the podcast. That's that. That's one of my biggest things I do every week. Yep, I recommend. Uh, let's say stalking around DC, muttering about Dixie. Um, no, <laughs> no one will question. Yeah, the, the, uh, the Capitol Police would have no problem with that. I'm sure. No. Nope. Uh, <laughs> sometimes shout out Dixie from the from rooftops and open windows. That will win you a lot of fans. <laughs> so I am going to now ask Lauren to say, uh, is there um, anywhere people can reach out to you if they want to ask you questions about Curious Cats of Mao or anything else you are working on? Uh, I am generally Falconess on various social media sites, mostly on Blue Sky right now. It's the word Falcon with E-S-S-E at the end. Uh, I do lurk in the Onyx Path Discord, and I will, through the course of the Backerkit campaign, be on, on Backerkit and peeking in on the Realms of Pugmire channel. So that's that's probably the easiest way to find me. And what about you, Dixie? Same. Uh, okay. <laughs> I and I uh, most places, I'm on the Discord. and they can find me on the onyx bath discord and of course on uh, the hell site that is twitter at dawkins mp and uh, yes do do uh, give us your support with curious cats and mao it's wonderful to see these new games get your support we're over on backer kit and the link will be in the show notes and all over anything onyx path related on the internet so thank you so much lauren Thank you so much, Dixie, and thank all of you for listening. Many worlds, one path.